Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta author Anjali Jetty recently won the Georgia Author of the Year Award in the category of first novel for The Parted Earth. The author explores the impact and aftermath of the partition of India in 1947. Later in the hour, Anjali and Jetty will tell us about her sweeping narrative that incorporates poetry and multi-generational timelines. I invite you to check out WABE's summer reading list on our website, wabe.org. You'll find WABE staff picks, such as Jennifer Dorian's recommendation for a novel about Cyprus, the island of missing trees, and Rose Scott's nonfiction pick, Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, the journals of Alice Walker, edited by Valerie Boyd. Let's start with one of my picks for your summer reading list. If you enjoy outrageous humor, don't mind risque jokes and unsavory language. Leave it to John Waters to make the protagonist of his first novel, Someone Dogs and Children Hate and Whose Own Family Wants Her Dead, She's known as Liarmouth, which is also the title of this hilarious new book. When John Waters joined me via Zoom last month, I asked how he came up with his protagonist's name, Marcia Sprinkle. You know, I don't know where names come from. I hear people's names. I read them. I have baby books that I use first names for. Where sprinkles came from, I don't know. But whenever I'm writing anything, the very first thing I do is come up with their names. It's really, really important to me. Now, every once in a while, I'll hear somebody. I know someone that knows somebody whose name is Hat backwards. And I said, that's his name? And he said, yeah, so I have a character in the book called Shirt Backwards that can't talk right because he always wears his shirt backwards. So once in a while, it's something you hear that gets 
<laughs> exaggerated and changed around and turned into something else. But real life inspires me, certainly. Oh, well, Marsha Sprinkle suits her very well. She certainly sprinkles her own brand of conniving and thievery and je ne sais quoi throughout the story. Yeah, her unpleasantness, her unpleasantness. But to her, all her acts are pleasant. I mean, she's called liar mouth later, and that is an erotic thing to her. But in the beginning, lying for her makes her feel prettier. It makes her feel powerful, and it makes her not hurt from all the things that have happened to her in her life, yeah. imagined and unimagined. Indeed. She uses her sex appeal to punish, chooses to live in foreclosed McMansions, and likes using gasoline because she's harnessing energy, baiting the environment. How would you further describe Marcia, John? Well, that nature even hates her. One time she opens her mouth and a large horse fly flies in it and chokes her. Um, dogs <laughs> instinctively hate her. As soon as a dog sees her, he hates her. And she's had a bad life with dogs. And so it's only natural that the one insane man that makes her tell the truth is a dog catcher in reverse. And I'm not going to give away the plot. No, please don't. There's much too much to savor for the reader to be. Would you talk about Marsha's take on people who stand to the left rather than the right <laughs> on escalators? Well, she thinks that, you know, you should know that in an airport, that people, the people that stand on the right are losers, undecided voters, people that have no confidence in their own opinions. And she believes that they should always move aside. All society should move aside for Marcia to get through because she knows exactly what she wants. Let's talk about how Marcia supports herself. What is her occupation, so to speak? Thief. But what she likes to do is steal luggage in airports because it's easy. It used to be hard when they check your tags. For some reason, they don't anymore. So she goes to airports and there's every possible way you can commit a crime in an airport is in this book, I think. Some of it comes from just watching people. Some of it is common sense. I have a friend that used to steal the flight attendant's purse on every flight. And it, really? it's always in the same space, that first bin, the little bin when you walk in. So they should really move it. They should put it somewhere else because word of mouth is out <laughs> in the suitcase thief community, but that's where you get it. <laughs> The word suitcase will always have added meaning for me now, thanks to your writing. <laughs> for those who haven't yet read the book, would you elaborate on suitcase? Suitcase is a term that I heard in Baltimore. Somebody said, I have a suitcase against that person. I said, what? What did you say? They said a suitcase. And then I realized they meant it's a lawsuit and a case against somebody. But if it's fraudulent, they say, I got a suitcase. And I love the expression. And I, it took me a while to understand what it meant. But it just means you've got a lawsuit against somebody that is fraudulent, but that you're going to do it. Everybody knows. And it's in Baltimore, if you see a bus crash, everybody runs and jumps on the bus and holds their neck for the insurance person to come. <laughs> the entire population. Everyone knows that. That's a, a common thing that happens in Baltimore. Who is Daryl? Well, Daryl is somebody, just a guy, that realizes he gets turned on by stealing, and then he meets his match, Marsha, because she steals from him. 
So they have this erotic thing with each other. And then he becomes her slave. He works for her. And his salary is he can have sex with her once a year. But Marsha is no man's used up calendar, as she puts it. So on the day that he is supposed to collect the year anniversary, she ditches him and everything goes wrong in the airport when they're stealing suitcases. And then the road trip begins. She is fiercely intelligent. And you give her some poetic reflections. I especially appreciate her assessment of someone who dared try to kidnap her. And I'm quoting you here. Even though she is blinded by the sudden sunlight, she can still see his big ignorant head like a moron moon in the middle of a solar eclipse of stupidity. <laughs> yeah, well, she, she's judgmental, all right. Let's put it that way. How did you come up with that simile? How long did that take you? I don't know. I just write in the morning. That's my job. I get out of bed. I read seven newspapers, drink five cups of tea, and go in that room and pick up my Bic pen and my yellow legal pads, and I just start at 8.01 every day. And that's my job to think up that stuff. Wow. So if I, the main person I'm trying to make me laugh is myself. And once in a while I do, and then I know I've gotten a really good joke if I can laugh out loud when I read it back. Do you have a copy of Liar Mouth nearby? Yep. Would you read page 48, paragraph one? This is after Marsha thinks to herself, fashion doesn't come easy when you're on the run. Marsha looks through a couple of trash cans and finds an old wig. God knows it's probably infested with lice, but once she shakes them out, she realizes they're dead, so technically it's safe to wear. Fashion doesn't come easy when you're on the run. As she slips it on, she sees it's at least her own color, brown, and the shoulder-length chatel style favored by married Orthodox Jewish women who cover their own hair for religious reasons is one she's never been photographed in by the authorities. Had a hooker wig snatcher been loose in a Hasidic neighborhood where the style is still seen? Only in Baltimore. Only in Baltimore. Baltimore remains your muse, though there are other places we visit in Liarmouth vividly described. Why does Baltimore continue to provide you inspiration? Because everybody that lives here has a sense of humor about themselves and they can make fun of their city first, but you can't. I think it's where my real friends live. Everybody I know here isn't in show business. I don't trust people that don't have old friends because old friends last longer than family. Mm -hmm. I think that gives me a feeling of safety to live here, even in a city that isn't so safe. Wow. Though... She thinks babies are satanic. Her word, not mine. <laughs> Marsha has a daughter. Would you tell us about Poppy? Well, Marsha regrets childbirth heavily, and she lives to make her daughter miserable. She's really happy to be a bad mother because she thinks that her daughter shouldn't have been born when she didn't ask for it. But Poppy tries. She really is a good person. 
and she ran a trampoline park and there was a horrible accident there and she got sued. And so she and her followers who are radical trampoline enthusiasts have to go on the run. But they're so obsessed by movement and trampoline that they have to have a car that has no shock absorbers. They have to keep going upward at all time. They bounce in place and it gets crazier and crazier and they, they become a minority that's on the run and, and other people start bouncing with them. And it becomes an insane physical fitness movement that really isn't impossible. It could happen. If you look it up, I know people that are addicted to bike riding. I know people that are addicted to running. It does set off certain things in your body that are addictive, like cocaine. So to them, the movement of up and down is something they have to do every day, which is something that a human being does not do naturally. How much research did you have to do about the radical trampoline movement you you depict here? Well, I went to a trampoline park and it wasn't open. The woman let me in and I walked around. She probably, if it had been open, they would have thought I was an insurance adjuster or something. <laughs> I read about a lot of trampoline accidents. I read about, you can look up bouncing and all this kind of thing and shaking. There are people that believe in this and I just exaggerated the truth. But I did learn different trampoline movements and different the names of different moves you can make on trampolines and what a trampoline does to you. And I, I always thought trampoline looks like fun, but not as much fun as they're having with it because they take it to such limits that at the end, they're, they're, they're on the run bouncing up and down the East Coast trying not to be noticed. And you have added to our ever-expanding English language, because when they're bullied and ridiculed, you use the word bouncist. There are bouncist people, yes. That's people that hate people that bounce. And, and, and they... Wait, inspire... outside of this book, there is such a thing? Yes. Oh, well, I don't know that there is. <laughs> I'm sure anything you can think of, there is it in real life. Definitely. I learned that a long time ago, but I have not found yet in my research. I did not find uh, a hate group against trampoline people. No. Okay. Well, you got to read the book to appreciate all facets of this movement. So we've met Poppy and her and her followers, and her followers, her followers because, indeed. Yeah. And her grandmother, Marcia's mother, has the name Adora, which made me think a little bit of Andorra. Did you have Bewitched on your mind? No, I didn't actually. I mean, I don't know that show that well at all. Adora was just, I have a baby book I looked through from the 50s and it was <laughs> name in there. If you look through it, you see practically every name in all my movies, everything. I love names. They're very important. And Adora was, I thought, a good name for a grandmother that runs a facelift place for pets. And, and, you know, I don't think that's too far beyond either. It is an exaggeration. I mean, she goes really far and, and her pet is a is really a cat trapped in the wrong body. And she tries to realize that and deal with that in the community. She lives on the Upper East Side, although... Well, as she said, sort of the Upper East Side. <laughs> not too far up and yeah. not too far west. She lives on the second floor in the East 60s, <laughs> a few blocks over. Would it be a spoiler if I mentioned the celebrity that Adora's dog resembles? No, you can say it. There's a couple of them. Which one? 
Joan Rivers? Oh, yeah, Joan wouldn't mind, because I know her. She was always great to me, and she insulted so many people. I just said the dog had that same look that she specializes in, <laughs> that wind tunnel look. Okay. A reader can further appreciate your vast repertoire of film knowledge when you make references to Die, Die, My Darling, and Tippi Hedren in The Birds. How important is the horror genre to you? Well, I think in my book, there's lots of jokes that are have references, but nobody's going to get them all. But there's one in the next sentence. So if you don't get it, it still doesn't slow the book down. I mean, I even say some, some characters says Hallelujah to the Hills. That's an obscure Jonas Mikas movie. How many readers do I really expect to know that? Some of mine will. And the ones that do will feel extra happy that they get that joke. But I think all references in, in my books are about things I love or I specialize in that have specialized knowledge. And I think, it, I always think my fans are really smart. I never explain a joke to anybody. And if they don't get it, look it up. And then you learn something. That's what you're supposed to learn when you read. The one and only John Waters. We'll be back with more of our conversation about his new novel, Liar Mouth, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. WABE's summer reading list was just published, and the list includes critics' top choices as well as personal favorites from the WABE staff. One of my favorites, Liarmouth by John Waters, made the list, and today we're listening back to my conversation with Waters from last month. About three-quarters of the way in, we learned that there is actually a sad, yet of course, outrageously hilarious backstory <laughs> to March's evil. What happens when she meets Lester? She meets Lester and he steals from her. So for once, somebody does something to her. She has met her match and he forces her to tell the truth. And once she tells the truth, she begins to open up erotically because she's never told the truth and lying was sexual to her. And 
he teaches her sex through something that I'm not even sure is real through ear entry, which I have a book that someone gave me called Ear Masturbation. I have no idea if it's supposed to be true or funny or anything, but I had never heard of that. So that is Marsha's entry level into sexuality because she hates sex. And more than that, she hates defecating. She hates anything with the natural body. She says she has no smell. She doesn't smell like anything. And that's the way it should be. And so she has to learn how to be a little bit human. And I think he teaches her that because he had a similar hideous backstory about what happened to him when he was young. And he confides in her and he calls her liar mouth, which to her is talking dirty in the best possible way. No one has ever called her that. And that turns her on. And once she's turned on, she is willing to go to the next level of kind of sexuality that no one else has ever seen or may ever want to do with someone that is her match. And together, they become a power couple that wants to reinvent the whole concept of owning a pet in Provincetown. And there is quite a finale that takes place there in an erotic celebration like no other. Oh, and I must say, <laughs> Provincetown, no doubt, will be giving John Waters tours out of Liarmouth now, don't you think? Well, who knows? I Maybe he'll never be allowed in there. I know the town's fire. <laughs> What's he going to think? I do have a great signing in a great clothing store there called Map that I do every year. And it's really one of the best ones in the country. So who knows? We'll see what Provincetown thinks of this book. I don't know, because the whole last finale takes place there. Well, you mentioned that book, yeah. that slim volume on ear masturbation in your acknowledgments, I noticed. After you thank Jonathan Glassy. You have one of the most respected literary editors in the business. Yes, I do. Yeah, and Farrar Strauss-Giroux is not exactly a trashy house. No. I love this, Jonathan. Well, they've been, they've done my last three books, and, and Jonathan's been my editor for all of them. He's a good writer, a poet, he's a great writer, and he laughed all through it. When I turned it in, I thought, what is he going to think? He was going to say, really enjoying it, laughing out loud. He, you know, he totally did not question. He understands the humor. And Jonathan is, is the kind of person that he isn't offended by, it, but he gets it. And we, we edited the book together. Certainly, he gave me good suggestions and everything. But we talked about which things can you get away with, which is funny. And, which, and that's a line today in humor that is ill-defined, totally. But he was wonderful to work with. I've, he's edited uh, Role Models, Carsick, uh, Mr. Know-It-All, and this one. So, yes, I'm just lined right up there with Susan Sontag. Right I'm telling <laughs> you. I mean, talk about a Hall of Fame. And I think there is something very endearing about that. I also wondered if you felt somewhat bemused because part of what you loved so much in your filmmaking was being the outsider and being outrageous. Does this make you feel mainstream? No, but I, I've addressed that in the past that when I was young, no one wanted to be an outsider. So I did. Now, everybody, I would imagine both Trump and Obama call themselves outsiders. So I wanted to be an insider, the thing nobody wants to be. 
And I ended up weirdly being sometimes an insider and being accepted by the very organizations that were hated me the most in the beginning. And I feel great about that. I'm honored with no irony at all, really. I don't, I'm not like Janis Joplin going back to her high school reunion to go, nah, 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 nah. I just think it's great that I haven't really changed that much. This book is not much different from the outrageousness of Pink Flamingos in a way, but everybody else, American humor has gone so far in a different direction that it is now accepted as kind of just American humor is dark humor, what they call, used to call sick humor or I don't know, on black humor, meaning black novels, not, not racially, just being dark in spirit. But I actually think mine are joyously obscene and joyously perverted. And I'm asking everybody to come along for the ride. And it might not be your world you want to live in, but if you come with me, I'll be a good, a good uh, guide and I'll take you through it and protect you and you'll have fun. Well, and you're talking about to your point about the zeitgeist, you are inclusive in your satire. I mean, there is no room for cancel culture here. Everybody is fair game, but there's a certain, I don't know, sweetness about it. I agree. I don't think it's mean-spirited. Even, even though Marsha does so many mean things, the way it's written, hopefully, is for humor, is so that you're astounded by her behavior. It's so terrible, but you laugh because it's so politically, well, it's not even politically incorrect. No one you know is that bad, really. <laughs> that is that screwed up in a way that feels that she is absolutely right and not one thing is wrong. I know a few people that are a little like that, but not so much as Marsha. Marsha is never, is incredibly confident and just thinks no one has the right to make eye contact with her. And she's quite happy that way. She's not lonely one bit. No, but wow. In the end, the warrior goddess of hate has finally found love. Now I realize the tagline, a feel-bad romance, but I felt good about that. Well, I agree. Feeling bad and feeling good is always in my, my work interchangeable. And it does have a surprise ending in a way, and it leaves it open, weirdly, to a sequel. Who knows how she will react from that day on? John, would you kindly read one more portion of the book. Absolutely. Your picks, the greatest hits. Beginning on page 216. Dog owners are still screaming in panic as their former pets maul them out front of Lester's doghouse headquarters. Some angry, indoctrinated mongrels have already escaped into town, leaving their stunned, bleeding jailers in shock, foolishly calling out the ridiculous pet names that these animals will never answer to again. The days of anybody giving them orders has come to an end. Sit, you. No human command will halt this canine insurrection, that's for sure. Luster takes Marsha's hand, and they walk out into this new world and see firsthand the carnage his re-education of dogs has ignited. Marsha, like all converts, is filled with zeal, and she accepts the fact that violence such as this is in order if the dramatic truth between master and man's best friend is ever to be exposed. Maybe dog owners will now take responsibility, Lester barks with authority. Leash laws, he scoffs. Put them on a leash and see how they like it. 
dog parks. Ha, did anybody ask the canines if they'd like to go there and do what? Pose for selfies with two-legged freaks? Climb over man-made obstacle courses that even the worst miniature golf course down Cape would reject? Walk in germ-filled stagnant splash pools and call it swimming? Dogs want to bury their own he continues ranting, not have human beings pick it up. Bravo. I did do the whole audio book. Thank you. So the audio book is coming out. Oh my God. When you read your own book out loud, it sounds even more hideous and obscene when you read it out loud. And I always look over at the poor people that are working in the studio, <laughs> their face when I'm reading some of this. It's, it's kind of liberating. But did you laugh out loud at your own writing? No, sometimes I didn't, but when I read it out loud, I, I'm laughing at just the expression of the technicians that are working there, their face that have no idea what they're doing. What well, you know, they haven't read it or anything. They're just listening to this for the first time for days of this recording. It it's kind of fun. And then afterwards they all seem they all seem to laugh. They all seem to be in good spirits. I must say that at one point Marsha says to herself something about think Meryl Streep was an actress, there should be an Oscar for lying because Marsha would get it. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there every, every career, even criminal ones, needs award shows. <laughs> Author, actor, and filmmaker John Waters, his novel Liar Mouth is one of my choices from WABE Summer Reading List. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Last week, Georgia Riders announced the winners and finalists of their 58th annual Georgia Author of the Year Awards. The winner of the Best First Novel Award was The Parted Earth by Anjali Jetty. The book explores the impact and aftermath of the partition of the subcontinent into India and Pakistan in 1947. When the author joined me via Zoom last year to discuss the novel, she began with an introduction to her main characters. Deepa is a 16-year-old Hindu girl who lives with her parents, who are both in medicine. Uh, her father is a physician. Her mother is a nurse, and Deepa is beginning a relationship with a 16-year-old boy whose name is Amir, and she is starting to feel the effects of the partition of her homeland. Many of her friends are Muslim, uh, Amir is Muslim, and she's coming to understand the fact that everyone she knows and loves uh, who is Muslim is going to have to to move. They're going to have to abandon everything they've ever known, their homes, their communities, and move to what will be the new nation, the new majority Muslim nation of Pakistan. So Deepa is trying to sort of wrestle with the politics that are happening outside of her home, the disruption of her homeland, of her dear friends, and also uh, she's falling in love with Amir. Hmm. 
Deepa's father asks, how can we march together with Gandhi during the day and destroy one another at night? For thousands of years, Indian identity was never so inextricably tied to religion. The blood of partition is on British, not Indian hands. How do these characters put a face to the situation and struggles of Indian life in 1947? You know, it is, it is such a tumultuous and disruptive time for all of these characters. And of course, many of them have been living in harmony for many years. Of course, there have always been tensions and strife and wars between the various religions that inhabited the subcontinent. But this accelerated, this was heightened due to British colonization of of India. It is the colonization that made these differences so apparent. And it it is British colonization that capitalized on the differences in culture and community and faith. And so what is happening is now that the British are leaving, they are literally drawing a line in the sand and directing Hindus and Sikhs to what will be the new nation of India, which will be Hindu majority, and directing the Muslims to go to the new Pakistan. And it really was a severance of what was then known as Indian identity. And so what is happening at this time is is grief. Many people who survived partition, and certainly the characters in this book, are dealing with not only the fact that they are being separated from people that they care about, but this severance of a land that they've lived on for generations, for thousands of years, which is being sliced up by their colonizer. Literature is Deepa's love and salvation. She views literature, the power of words, and ancient stories as her anchor in life. In fact, the very first page of chapter one contains a poem by Tagore, the first non-European Nobel laureate in literature. He received that in 1913. Would you please read those five lines of poetry? Happily. It's one of my favorite first verses in the book. But I find that thy will knows no end in me. And when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders. What is the role of poetry within the context of this novel? Personally, I find poetry, generally speaking, to be a great healer of traumas. And what is happening around Deepa, what is happening around her parents and certainly Amir and his family is that there is, there is no adequate language to describe what is happening to their lives. There's no language to describe the kind of violence and hostility that they're facing the sharp divisions that have been erected between communities 
And it's poetry that gives these characters the space to process what they are witnessing. It is, it is really the, the only form that gives Deepa some kind of comfort and some kind of hope that when it's all said and done, things will be okay. And it is what she clings to because she's really not able to cling to much else. She endures a horrific tragedy during partition. And it's really only poetry that continues to connect her to reality and continues to let her to keep living her life. Anjali, I know you were a practicing lawyer and this is your debut novel. Have you written volumes of poetry? I wish, Lois. I am a major admirer of poets. You could even go far as to say that I am a wannabe poet. Um, (laughs) I I can tell you that I have volumes of bad poetry (laughs) (laughs) that are filed away in deep, dark uh, corners of my cabinets. Um, But no, I, I, uh, I have so much respect for poets. I actually personally feel it's the most challenging form to write in. And I love to read poetry and I find great comfort in it. And when I was struggling with how, how to figure out how a character like Deepa goes on, how she lives from day to day after what she's seen, you know, I've remembered dark times in my own life and how, how literature, including poetry, got me through it. And so this was, this was the gift that I wanted to give to Deepa as well, a love for poetry. Well, I think the poems that we read of Deepa's in this book, written by you, do not indicate wannabe poets. I appreciate that. Thank you. As the world around them was crumbling and chaotic, Deepa and Amir fell in love, crazy love. And Deepa writes a poem conveying her love. Would you read the 16-year-old's poem on page 48? This is a poem Deepa writes called Night Notes. Pen to paper, paper to pen, coaxing my heart with ink the shade of midnight. Shapes shift under the moon's glow, unfolding musical lyrics, sweet sounds bringing you to me, me to you. Verdant leaves cradle dewdrops in their veins, our only witnesses. Now, Amir expresses his love through origami creations with notes he includes. How is the origami, as Amir's form of communication, rich in metaphor here? So, uh, as you mentioned, Lois, Amir makes origami, and he hides within the origami little love notes to Deepa and leaves them in plants on her family's porch so that she can find them, and Deepa collects them. And one of the reasons I used origami in the book, and I thought it was apt, an apt way for Amir to communicate with Deepa, is because origami is really about creating something new out of a blank slate. And during this time of immense strife and fear and panic in 1947 during partition, 
many of these characters have to leave behind everything they've ever known and begin a completely new life elsewhere, like, like refugees all over the world do. And so to me, the origami symbolizes how these characters, how people during partition had to take something out of nothing and they had to create a new life and create something beautiful out of it. And so to me, that was an important way for me to convey Amir's messages of love to Deepa. You mentioned this horrific event, Deepa encounters. Her world is shattered by tragedy, and that ends part one of the book. Would you explain how part two moves to another time period, and more broadly, how you structure the novel? So as you mentioned, Deepa's uh, 16-year-old life, which she lives in 1947, is in part one of the book. And the book is divided into three parts total. Part two takes us to 2016, and we encounter a character named Sean Johnson. Sean is short for Shanti, which is an Indian name. Sean is a biracial woman. She has a white mother and an Indian father. But Sean is very disconnected from her Indian heritage. Her father, Vijay, left her and her mother when Sean was only five years old, and he moved to India out of the blue. Didn't really make it clear why he was even moving to India. And when Sean is age 11, Vijay suddenly passes away. And Sean's grandmother is Deepa, and uh, she is completely estranged from her as well. So we encounter a Sean that really has no connection to India, has no idea that she has any family members who live through partition. And she's also going through a, a very rough time of her own. She's recently lost a pregnancy and her marriage has ended. And it's only when these terrible things happen that Sean feels a longing to connect with the memories she has of her father and her Indian family. And part three does something a bit more unusual than parts one and two, which focus on Deepa and Sean respectively. In part three, we readers actually enter several different characters' points of view, all of whom have some connection to partition, which is not immediately obvious. It jumps in countries and it jumps in decades. So we see, for example, Lahore, which is a city in Pakistan uh, in the present day. We see Amritsar, which is a city in India in the 1980s. We see London in the 1950s. And each of these characters are going to sort of work together to figure out the central mystery in the book. I'd like to go back to part two. Chapter eight is set in Atlanta, and you give a very vivid sense of place here, as well as describing a lovely friendship between Sham, whom you introduced, and Chandani. Would you talk about their relationship, how they meet, and what evolves in Atlanta? So Chandani is Sean's neighbor in Atlanta. She lives just down the street. They've been neighbors for about 18 months, but don't know each other too well. Chandani had been widowed 
18 months earlier and just decided to restart her life in Atlanta where she has a niece. She can be a little bit um, abrasive, kind of harsh. She does mean well and she's well-intentioned and she's living alone. She's in her 60s. She has an adult son who lives elsewhere. And Atlantans will appreciate the sense of place you evoke in this section. Please talk about this setting of the Atlanta Botanical Garden and comments about the cycle of life. Oh, the Atlanta Botanical Gardens is probably one of my favorite locations in Atlanta. I usually visit a few times a year. And Chandani decides to take Sean to the gardens to talk with her and to sort of help her begin her journey of healing. Sean is now living alone. She's mourning a, a miscarriage and the breakup of her marriage. And Chandani, who has recently lost her own husband, is also in mourning. She's also grieving. And so Chandani takes her to the gardens and she takes her to what is my favorite uh, botanical sculpture in the gardens, which is Earth Goddess. And for many people in the Atlanta area, you will know it is this beautiful sculpture with a fountain of a woman. We see her head and her shoulders coming out of the water. And for Chandani, this symbolizes a rebirth. And she takes Sean to this space. And, and it is here where Chandani asks Sean, in an attempt to get her to sort of take the steps necessary to heal, whether she has named the baby that she lost. And it's this question that sort of begins Sean's new journey, which starts her looking forward again and seeing the generations of her family as a life cycle. And it causes her to not only name her child, but also to begin thinking more deeply about her past and her ancestry and the father and grandmother that came before her and understand that if she's going to heal at all, it is going to come from reconnecting with all of the lives that came before her and understanding the decisions and also the tragedies that her family members made. Part three opens in London in 1954. Tell us about Gertrude. Gertrude is one of my favorite characters in the book, probably because she is modeled a little bit after my Austrian grandmother, Gertrude, who passed away a few years ago. Gertrude is Austrian. She finds herself in London when all of her family who lived in Linz, Austria, were killed. Uh, during World War II and the Nazi occupation of Austria. So she, in many respects, is also a refugee, and she meets Deepa at the university that they both attend in London, and they live in the same building and decides to help Deepa raise her very young son, Vijay, who is only six years old, and they form a bond. Both of them are very, you know, they live their lives alone. Neither one of them have close family members to rely on, and so they kind of form their own family together. When the narrative moves to 2017, can you tell us how the characters' stories converge? One of the things that struck me most about Partition, and it's something I still think about regularly, that six decades passed before there was a formal widespread effort 
to archive survivor stories about partition. This is why the archive, a formal way of documenting stories is actually at the heart of the book. It's why 40% of the book takes place during partition and the other 60% is afterwards because I'm asking the question, what happens if we don't know our ancestors' histories? How does not knowing shape our lives? And so one of the mechanisms that the character stories converge is what I call in the book, the partition project, which is actually modeled after a real organization called the 1947 Partition Archive, which was started in 2011 by a woman named Gunita Singbala to help collect the stories of survivors during partition. And so it's this archive, the Partition Project, that eventually brings many of the character stories of partition to light. And it is how they begin to find one another. And once again, poetry plays a major role in the culmination. Would you read Engine, the poem included in chapter 18? Happily. I will lay railroad tracks across continents, one plank after another in perpetuity. Look for my reflection in the rails. Listen to the vibration of my voice. Why must words fail me now when only syllables can bridge the distance, the gap of our sorrow, the abyss between our entwined souls? <sighs> and then you step back a year and the narrative moves to Lahore, Pakistan. The theme of origami is reintroduced, this time with metal sculpture. Anjali, I understand as a writer how you can include poetry for your characters. You can write those poems. But this visual art sculpture, how did this idea come to you? You know, it's interesting. In 2012, I was staying at uh, the Hambidge Center in Northeast Georgia in Rabin Gap, uh, working on the novel. And I went up to Highlands, North Carolina, there's a little museum there. And I was looking at, there was an exhibit and there were, there was uh, metallic uh, sculptures, sculptures made out of metal. And I entered this room and there were these beautiful small sculptures hanging from the ceiling. And I could not tell you Lois right now what those sculptures were, but the room was otherwise completely black and they were hanging from the ceiling and, and the light was sort of shining on the twine that they were hanging from and from the sculpt on, on, and on the sculptures themselves. And I, it was one of the most beautiful arrangements of art I'd ever seen. And I thought that is something that I need to think about using in this book. And so I began thinking about the artist in the book and what she needs at that time. She is in her seventies, she has seen a lot of tragedy in her life. And she's at a moment where she feels powerful. She is a survivor. And so to me, when I think of sculpture, when I think of metals, I think of strength. I think of the kind of force that's required to shape something out of metal. And I thought, how amazing is that to be an artist who is a metal sculptor who can who can mold something so strong 
and, and make it bend to their will in order to tell a story. And, and so that to me was a very natural medium for this character. Hmm. Author Anjali Anjetti from our conversation last June. More information about her award-winning novel, The Parted Earth, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about String Awakening, an upcoming performance from Challenge the Stats and their Juneteenth Orchestra. Plus, composer Carlos Simon's Juneteenth release, Requiem for the Enslaved. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.